In the construction business and can't find what you need, Quality Supply and Tool has served Hoosiers for over a quarter of a century. Tom Hawk is the branch manager of the Indy location on South Harding Street. We've always been big on keeping our shelves fully stocked of inventory of industrial-grade tools, concrete, masonry products, as well as the necessary accessories to help get the job done. You don't have it, you can't sell it. Our experience allows us to help with getting the pros as well as the weekend pro taken care of. Quality Supply and Tool also has locations in Bloomington, Lafayette, and Jeffersonville to help you think outside the box. Store. Only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. He has won his fourth Indianapolis 500. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Hey, good evening to you on Carb Day Eve. Hope you are set and hydrating, by the way, for tomorrow. Going to be a fantastic day at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and what is the penultimate program of this year's version of Beyond the Bricks. First off, let me thank all of you who have been so loyal and listening and so kind in passing along your enjoyment of this program. It is certainly enjoyable and an honor to do. My name is Jake Query, Mike Thompson, Joins me here shortly, Sam Fritz, Eddie Garrison, Todd Meyer, among those behind the scenes that help make this show possible. And Mike Thompson, the reality is it's only fitting that we would acknowledge those behind the scenes that make it possible for people to hear what we talk about, because that's the theme of tonight's program. That's right. And I think it's a good idea to highlight the people behind the scenes at some points. And so I thought tonight would be a good good way to do that we got to highlight some folks behind the scenes so let's begin with some of the names and faces that were oh so known back of yesteryear some of the names still are and we'll begin with the gentleman who mike i think when it comes to people like you and i who have an appreciation and an enthusiasm for the history of this facility the indianapolis motor speedway We have such an appreciation for those who before us were able to document the things that took place. I have always felt, you may uh, disagree, but I've always felt like kind of the first initial real documentation that is a must read about the Indianapolis Motor Speedway is 500 miles to go. And the subject of tonight's program to begin is the guy that sat down to write that book some 62 years ago. Yeah, Al Blamker wrote 500 Miles to Go, which was one of the the first really important books about the 500. I think you could also put Wall Smacker, Pete Topalo's book in that category. Uh, Gentlemen, Start Your Engines, who uh, was was ghostwritten by Al Blemker on behalf of Wilbur Shaw. Those were kind of really the important early books about the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the Indianapolis 500. Um, you know, 500 Miles to Go... Uh, was a, was a really important book at the time because it had a lot of information about the really the early formation of the track. Now, I mean, it has it has its detractors in that you know there's some made up quotes. Obviously, I mean, Al Blemker was not sitting with Carl Fisher and you know uh, Lem Trotter as they were driving to the Speedway grounds, what, what would become the Speedway grounds for the first time. So he doesn't you know he doesn't know exactly what was said there. There's a lot of you know, written down quotes between all these different people. So you've got to get by that, obviously, when you're reading it. But it, it really does have some important information about the formation of the Speedway. The the interesting thing to note is that 500 Miles to Go was written by Al Blemker, who 
by title, essentially the public relations director of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. I believe vice president of publicity or vice president of public affair may have been the actual title. But in 1961, what you're talking about is the 50-year anniversary of the founding, essentially, of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, or the opening of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So when Blemka wrote the book, yes, there may have been some liberties used in terms of quotes or, or things that were attributed in it. But for the most part, the book would have been written with, and I think this is the easy thing to forget, Mike, at the time that he wrote it, many of the central key figures of the early years may not have directly still been someone he talked to, but he probably only had like one degree of separation, if you will, and being able to talk to and get recount of many of the early years of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. But there also became a time where Blemker himself would be interviewed about his role, his capacities within the Speedway. And that includes the first clip that we're going to hear tonight with Freddie Agabation. Mike, set up for us what we're about to hear and when this took place. This is also from uh, 1961. This is one of the uh, – Fred Agabation did that series of interviews for on behalf of Champion Sparkplug. Um, they were called the Golden Almanac. And he interviewed a lot of behind-the-scenes people uh, as part of a series that Champion did. So this is actually Freddie interviewing Al Blemker, uh, you know, as part of his behind-the-scenes interviews. So here is Freddie Agabation with the vice president of publicity, if you will, for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Back in 1961, Freddie Agabation and Al Blemker. This is Fred Agabation speaking to you from the Indianapolis Motor Speedway's museum. And we have with us the director of publicity, Al Blemker, who, by the way, is one single individual is more responsible for all the publicity at Indianapolis Motor Speedway than anyone else. Al, would like to ask you a couple of questions, if we may. Uh, you have had a lot to do with the growth of the uh, public interest as far as the 500 is concerned. Uh, do you think that this 50th anniversary will create extra interest? I'm sure it already has, Fred. Our ticket sales are way ahead of any previous year, and there's a great deal of interest in the ceremonies that we'll have on race day involving some of the old cars. Uh, by the way, I'm reading your uh, new book, 500 Miles to Go. That's terrific. How long did it take you to write it? Well, the writing job wasn't so bad, Freddie. I wrote it in about 11 months, but I spent six years of research before I wrote that first word. Well, I'll bet the researching must have been uh, a terrific and unusual and interesting job. It was. I found out a lot of things I never even suspected about this place. <laughs> I'll bet you did. Al, by the way, what would you say was the uh, most unusual uh, thing that's happened at the 500? Well, the most unusual thing happened even before the 500, Freddie. Back in 1910, on July the 4th, Carl Fisher had a five-mile race out here between an airplane and what he called a wind machine, which actually was an overland race car that was powered by a propeller mounted on the rear. There was no drive shaft. It was just like a wingless airplane. Well, I wasn't aware of that, Al. By the way, the museum is a point of interest in Indianapolis. How many people per year visit? Well, we have about five or 6,000 visitors every week. That gives us an attendance of about about 250,000 a year, not counting the month of May, when it's full from dawn till dusk almost. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, your picture's in there a couple times, once with the Champion 100 Mile an Hour Club and once with the Cummins Diesel, and the Cummins Diesel itself is on display, and that's the car, of course, that you drove 138 mile an hour here to set on the pole in 1952. I'll never forget that day. Neither will I, Al. 
Al, I noticed that several new machines have been added to the Speedway Museum. The two that we're particularly proud to have, Fred, uh, one is the 1915 Stutz that Earl Cooper drove to win the national championship that year, and the other one is one of the fabulous front-drive Novi Specials, which first made its appearance here in 1946, and as you know, it set several records with different drivers. It certainly has, and I'll bet the viewers will get a real good, enjoyable trip out of that museum now. It looks I'm lovely. sure they will. Thank you, Al Blemker, Director of Publicity of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. I think when you talk about, Mike, the early years, and as we talked about, just trying to soak up as much information as you can about the early years and and the early first half century of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, invaluable resource to have those guys have the same passion that people have about it today. Definitely, and and you're right. I mean, having the fact that Al Blemker was able to talk to Ray Haroon. You know, I mean, Ray Haroon was there in 1961. I mean, he mentioned in that clip that, uh, you know, so there was going to be special cars going to be out on the track that year. Well, you know, Ray Haroon drove the Marmon Wasp in pre-race that year. Uh, so, you know, he had the opportunity, as you alluded to, to talk to Earl Cooper and talk to Ray Haroon and, you know, talk to all these different folks for, you know, his book projects and things like that. So, you know, that would be a really valuable resource. One of those in which we have talked about in the past in terms of important people at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. 23 years ago, Clarence Cagle was inducted, as a matter of fact, into the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum Hall of Fame. He was the superintendent of the grounds of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway from 1948 through 1977. Essentially, I think easier way to say it would be this and you tell me mike thompson if you agree probably the easier job description for clarence cagle would be tony holman's kind of right hand man that just kind of took care of things right and if there was something that needed to be addressed if there was something that needed to be cleaned up if there was something that needed to be perfected then tony holman knew his man who his man was that would be able to take care of things agree 100 percent. i mean he was uh you know he oversaw everything uh, you know, in, in terms of construction, in terms of renovation projects, uh, you know, taking care of the facility, um, getting the facility ready um, from, you know, when all the weeds were there. And, you know, people have seen those shots of the dilapidated track uh, after the, you know, the war that, to get it ready for 1946. So you're right. I mean, he, he was definitely involved in everything important there. I think it's easy to forget, to your point, Mike, that when Tony Holman purchased the Indianapolis Motor Speedway after World War II, it was in massive need not only of a facelift, but of getting back in working condition. And Tony Holman had his guy that could help do that. It was Clarence Cagle, who, by the way, also was interviewed by Freddie Agabashian. Speaking to you from the office of Clarence Cagle, superintendent of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Clarence, I don't think anyone can celebrate the golden anniversary of the Speedway with any greater pride than you. For, for the record, uh, how long have you served as superintendent of this tremendous racing plant? Fourteen years, Freddie. Well, in those 14 years, what would you say would be the biggest job you ever tackled? Running the Speedway. Well, that is a job in itself, believe me. How many people are employed at the Speedway during racing season or the month of May, Clarence? 3,500. In other words, comparable to running a city at 
50 to 75,000 people. That is true, except the city would probably be easier to run because you don't have to do it all in 30 days. How true. What improvements have been made at the track this year? We have put in a new safety fence on the back side of the track, which now makes it all the way around for protection of the spectators plus of the race driver. We've also put in new cement retaining wall on the backstretch and a new paddock grandstand. Well, besides uh, tremendous uh, advantageous improvements for the uh, customers, the Speedway has always had in mind the safety not only of the customers but of the race people themselves, and I think that's very credible. Looking into your crystal ball, by the way, what do you see as developments on the Speedway property in the future? More grandstands and a new clubhouse, nine more holes of golf, which will make us a 27-hole golf course, possibly a swimming pool over here, uh, also more and better roads to facilitate getting people in and out of here. Well, that's wonderful. By the way, we've watched cleanup preparations in the stands and infield after each race every year, and it's a tremendous project. I've often wondered just how, many, how much paper you managed to collect, Clarence. Well, Freddie, to give you an illustration, we have a grandstand's 100 feet wide and 750 feet long. We'll get 20 dump trucks. We have 10 grandstands, so that'll give you one idea of the grandstand infield. Uh, we have been in the past using about 40 men to clean it, which takes 30 days to clean it up. And besides all the paper, you have another problem. All the bottles and other stuff. To <laughs> that stick is to the so ground. true. <laughs> There's another cleanup problem that is really important, and that's cleaning the track. We spend an average of eight hours per day cleaning this track in order to make sure that it's real safe for the boys when they go out. Of any parts that might be on the track, such as nails and engine parts and such. By the way, I want to thank you very kindly, Clarence Cagle, superintendent of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Thank you, Freddie. There's a couple interesting things you need to know also about Clarence Cagle. When they first went to the Speedway, after Tony Holman had bought the property from Eddie Rickenbacker, he went with Wilbur Shaw. They went to unlock the gate, and the gate literally fell down. It was so rotten. And he kind of knew right then he had a really big job on his hands. But he had worked for the Holman family for a long time. And the only time he didn't work for the Holman family was when he was in the service during World War II. And he was actually a chauffeur. And he chauffeured... Uh, at one point, he was driving around Dwight Eisenhower, and he was also uh, General Patton's personal driver at one point. So he had a really interesting and colorful career. You know, it's interesting also, some of the renovations that he was talking about, the grandstands, for example, the you know the second level of the grandstands eventually, between the time that interview took place and where we stand today, Obviously, a total repave all the way around of the track, new garage areas that were built. Um, clearly, the garages that we see now, I believe, were constructed in 1986, if I'm not mistaken, in the in the capacity that we see them today. But at its core, the thing about IMS that is so fascinating is that each area of the racetrack that you see still offers that hint, if you will, of in some taste in some case the skeleton and in other cases still the entire body of what was there in its originality in 1911 and then through the of course updates that have taken place up until the year that we enjoy today for the upcoming 107th Indianapolis 500 mile race 
Also, we have now seen an era where celebrities are those that wave the green flag. Dwayne Sweeney is the one that I think of from my childhood that was the starter of the race. But for many people who went to the race coming off of the war and up through into the 50s, it was Seth Klein, Mike, that was the eyes of the venue were all on Seth to find out whether or not we were going to get started the greatest spectacle in racing. Seth Klein was there for a long time. I mean, Seth Klein started uh, as the chief starter in 1920. So Seth Klein was there for a long time before turning it over to Bill Vanderwater. Seth Klein also, like the two that we have heard from before, was interviewed about his experiences at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the longtime starter of the Indianapolis 500. Speedway time once again, and here is one of the outstanding figures in the racing business. This is Sid Collins introducing the traffic cop for the world's busiest street, Seven Flags Street, May 30th at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Here is the official starter since 1920, Seth Klein. Seth, what's the most thrilling experience you've had at the track in those many years? Each and every race since 1920. Everyone has been bigger and better, and I expect 51 to be no exception. I know you have a very big job at the track, Seth. We talked about seven flags street a moment ago. Let's evaluate what each of those flags identify and what they mean to you and to the drivers of the track. First of all, let's start our race with the green flag. The green flag is used to start the race and subsequently during the race after the yellow flag has been shown to slow down the race, the green flag is used to show the course is clear again and they may resume top speed. And we have two uses for the green flag. That is right. To start and to resume. What about the white flag, Seth? The white flag is displayed with the number of the individual car that is entering its last lap of the race. You have 33 separate cards and you show it with the flashing of the white flag. That's right. And the checkered flag is familiar to all, but uh, to enlighten us here, what is its official purpose? That is that you're finished your 200th lap and that is also displayed with your uh, individual number. And Seth, when you wave the checkered flag, you could as easily wa wave your cap or your coat, couldn't you? Or even my checkered socks. <laughs> because Seth is bedecked in Speedway regalia that day on May 30th each year. Which flag do you use more than any other at the track? The blue flag with the diagonal orange stripe. That's the passing flag. It is used to protect the cars who are running fastest regardless of position. We are always favoring the cars who are trying to make the pace. Means the car in... In the back has the right of way, the other car should move over and give him room. That's right. Now, how about this yellow flag of yours? The yellow flag is used to slow down the race due to hazard. Either rain or a wrecked car that's in the path of uh, the regular traffic. Did you use the yellow flag last year very often? Well, all the time it was raining, it was out. And then you went into the red flag, which is our next one? Yes, or we the used the flag have a separate. No, we usage. used the checkered flag last year to stop the race because they'd run over the fifty-one percent required for calling it a complete race. I see. Then what is the use, uh, Seth Klein, for the red flag? The red flag is used when it is necessary to stop the race before th uh, two hundred and fifty-five miles because it cannot be called a race according to three A rules unless fifty-one percent has been run. Have you ever had occasion to flash the red flag? Yes, once many years ago, we stopped the race before it had gone that far and restarted and finished the same day. The black flag is the seventh now. What is its purpose? The black flag is used to stop an individual car due to the driver 
not behaving properly or something loose on his car that may be a hazard to himself or other cars on the track. Uh, Seth, you have some lights uh, situated about the track as well. Are you in charge of those as well as your colored flags? Yes, there's an operator across the track that follows my yellow and green flag. When I display the yellow flag, he turns on the yellow lights around the track. So if the driver's on the back stretch, he can follow the progress of the race as well as those in front of you seeing your flag on the front stretch. He knows it immediately. What do you watch out for in particular while the race is in progress? I watch for the boys who are running the fastest. And I suppose there's wonderful sportsmanship at the track each year. Uh, without exception, I might say that there are 33 sportsmen of the first water that start the race each year. Well, thank you very much, Seth Klein. If you motorists will drive as carefully as the drivers on Seth Klein's Seven Flag Street, our highways will be greatly improved and much safer. Thanks again, Seth Klein, the official starter of the 500-mile race since 1920. And we're sure your prediction of a more thrilling race this year will come true on May 30th at Indianapolis, Indiana. And that race, or that interview, I should say, took place in 1951. What Seth Klein was referencing in terms of having to call the race short was the 1950 race in which Johnny Parsons won after 138 laps. More from a peek behind the curtain of those stars from behind the stars that made it all possible when we return to Beyond the Bricks. This is Beyond the Bricks, brought to you by Quality Supply and Tool. Think outside the box. Store on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Jake Query, Mike Thompson, Beyond the Bricks, here on 93.5, 107.5 The Fan. Unearthing some fabulous audio of yesteryear to remember the names, the faces that make up the Indianapolis 500-mile race and have contributed to make it the greatest spectacle in racing, the greatest sporting event in the world. By the way, it's beyond just audio that you can find at the Memorabilia Show. Great day number one today and still an opportunity for you to get out and find your 500 memorabilia that you have been looking for. There are a couple of things that are fabulous about tomorrow's show from 3 until 8 or on Saturday from 9 until 4 at the Embassy Suites Event Center in Plainfield. And you can get in for just $7 still. Um, I guess at this point, the all-encompassing pass, it would just be a $7 daily ticket you would purchase, but a bargain at twice the price. And most importantly, along with all of the fabulous memorabilia, your chance to meet Mike Thompson, right, Mike? That is the real perk of the memorabilia show. The best part about the memorabilia show is you can meet me. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> no, and you can meet. Uh, there's famous drivers uh, signing autographs, and and there's uh, you know raffles and things like that. But yes, if you do come um, on on Friday, I, I know uh, Tom Sneva signing autographs. On Saturday, Ari Leyendijk signing autographs, among others. Um, I know Robert Wickens is scheduled to sign autographs as well. So. Um, you know, you can meet some some great drivers and, and legends of the of racing. And in addition to that, you can also meet me. And you can purchase some very, very cool looking stuff. No question about it. Um, when it comes to those who are kind of the unsung heroes, sometimes the behind the scenes people of the Indianapolis 500 over the course of the year, some of them more upfront than others or in front, I guess I should say, than others more recognizable, some a little behind the scenes. One of those in which we will feature tonight, actually the wife of Paul Page, but 
in the working and broadcasting capacity. Sally Larvick in 1982 became the first female broadcaster, at least it was billed that way, of the IMS radio network. And Sally Larvick in 1982 made that breakthrough. Mike, when I think of Sally Larvick, I think of her interviewing, uh, doing pit reporting up into the 75th running of the 500 for example in 1991 so um somebody who did a fabulous job in the pits over the course of the years uh, but you have pulled out some audio from sally larvick correct that's correct she did she had an outstanding career did a fine job uh, for the indianapolis motor speedway radio network for several years and this clip here is her debut on the network in 1982 it's always a happy moment when we're able to add a new member to our broadcast crew. Each rookie announcer, just like the rookie drivers, must carry three stripes on their microphone indicating their rookie status. There is just such a microphone marked today, and it is doubly proud is this moment for us because the hand that holds it is our first lady reporter on the broadcast. Formerly a television personality in Peoria, Illinois, and Nashville, Tennessee, and here in Indianapolis, Indiana, she is no stranger to the sport, having covered these champions across the country. Her assignment today is to uncover the behind-the-scenes stories that surround this great name. Her name is Sally Larvick. Thank you. Thank you very much, Paul, and it is indeed an honor for me to be a part of this great broadcast team. And for my first assignment, I have a pleasurable one, and that is to interview the Grand Marshal of this great event, and that is Merlin Olson, an actor, a former defensive lineman for the Los Angeles Rams and NBC sportscaster. It's a pleasure to have you with us today, Merlin. Thank you, Sally. Nice to be here and exciting to be a part of this great race. Now, you saw the racetrack like many other most fans do not see it. You just took a parade lap around the track. What did you think of it? Well, there's no way that the drivers can look out and see what we saw because our concentration was on the stands. Obviously, their concentration must be on the track and on the car. But what a tremendous mass of humanity, literally hundreds of thousands of people all here in this holiday atmosphere having their barbecues and, and their beverages and just having a great time. And we're happy to have you to be a part of it with us. Thank you very much, Merlin. Enjoy the day. Thank you very much. Back to you, Paul. Of course, part of the fearsome foursome was Merlin Olson. He, of course, unfortunately passed away in 2010. But I most know him. You heard him say there, or heard Sally Larvick, I should say, say there, actor. That's what I think of him as from Little House on the Prairie, as a matter of fact. But Sally Larvick was an integral part of the IMS radio network, not only reporting on radio for open wheel racing, but also doing television work, notably uh, with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, amongst others, and covering cart and different racing series throughout her career, Sally Larvick in 1982. But Mike, reality is she might have had a predecessor 38 years prior to that. That's correct. Last uh, week, I happened to be working with the 1954 race, and I found that there was actually a female member of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Network decades before Sally Larvick. So, we have a clip. Now, I'll, I want to set up the clip, and then I want to tell you something a little bit interesting after the clip as well. But um, this is Sid Collins introducing Paula Carr in 1954. For the very first time in the coverage of this sports classic, a woman broadcaster has been added to our staff. Throughout the day, she will be roaming these grounds with a very special assignment. Tell us about it, Paula Carr. Yes, Sid, I'll be busy today roaming the entire 433 acres of the Speedway to bring you interviews with celebrities and personalities here from all over the world. And now back to Sid Collins in the Pagoda. 
Now, the now that's, that's the, in, the intro to Mexican radio was, by Wall of Voodoo at no additional charge. But uh, obviously, we're talking there about audio that is nearly 70 years old, right? Yeah, that's correct. Now, that's Paula Carr in 1954. Now, she was a very, very popular radio host in Indianapolis at the time. Uh, she hosted a show called Breakfast with Paula, which actually emanated from the coffee shop of the Claypool Hotel, which uh, her family was involved with. And she was very, very popular. But what's interesting about Paula Carr is at the height of her popularity, um, she met a, a golf pro um, and married this uh, golf pro, uh, Fred Wampler, and she gave up her career completely and and just left the business. So she was... She was on the 54 broadcast. Now, unfortunately, um, I only have some really partial uh, portions of the 1954 race. So that's the only clip I have of her. So I don't have her anywhere interviewing anybody or any celebrities or anything in the 1954 race. That's the only clip I have of her of that of that particular race. And then in 1955, she stopped doing her show and then uh, and and moved on and 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 married this uh, this golf pro Fred Wampler and and then she moved out of the state and and went on with her life. Actually, she moved to they moved to Denver, Colorado, for the almost the rest of her life, I believe. And the interesting thing you could certainly hear in that clip that she sounded like somebody that would be doing a variety show or some sort of an entertainment show. I mean, that sounded, you could certainly understand why Sid Collins would have selected her to be uh, doing the the interviews around the grounds, if you will. Those grounds, of course, by that time already were starting to spruce and show themselves as the greatest sporting facility in the world, which the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, that was the design when Carl Fisher dreamed of it back in 1909, opened it in 1911, and then Tony Holman purchased it after World War II. We certainly know of Tony Holman's place in terms of overseeing it into obviously becoming the greatest single-day spectator sport in the world and the ultimate showcase of the automobile. Tony Holman had owned the Speedway for just over a decade when he sat down with Sid Collins in 1957. This is Sid Collins, and I'm standing in front of the new Control Tower and Tower Terrace at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway with Tony Holman, the sportsman who's poured millions of dollars into this famous racetrack during the last 12 years in order to make it the finest in the world today. Tony, the changes you've made here since last year's race are almost unbelievable. And I wonder if you'll give us a summary of the many things you've done in the interest of safety and comfort. Well, during the past year, we've completed a, uh, an entirely new pit area. In fact, uh, before I start on that, uh, everything practically on the inside of the uh, racetrack at the Speedway has been changed. And we now have a uh, new uh, pit area protected by a concrete retaining wall, which will give a lot more working room for the pit crews, Sid. And then we have a, uh, a wonderful new control tower, which will provide uh, better working conditions for the officials there. And then the tower terrace itself, right by the tower, uh, will offer the fans uh, a much more opportunity to see the exciting pit action and pre-race uh, ceremonies at the starting line. And then, too, to help the uh, traffic problem and uh, for many safety reasons, we have constructed a uh, new three-lane tunnel under the backstretch. Well, Tony, I noticed many of the fences here around the previously restricted areas are gone this year. That's right, Sid. Uh, we wanted to give the race fans 
uh, every possible chance to get uh, more acquainted with the uh, racing fraternity and also to see uh, all the preparations that are necessary for staging this 500-mile race. Now, according to the entry list, 24 of the 54 cars this year are brand new. How does this compare with former years, Tony? Well, I believe it's the uh, finest field that we've ever had here at the Speedway, anyway, since we've been here uh, during the past 12 years. And uh, this year, even uh, many of the rookies will drive brand new cars, which uh, certainly looks like for a wide open race this year. Well, one of the big bits of news here at the Speedway we're all talking about is the procedure on the pace lap that you've changed this year. Will you tell us about it, please? Well, uh, that's going to be entirely changed this year. The first time, I guess, since the first 500-mile race was ever run. We're going to start the uh, cars in their own pit on the uh, pit apron. And then as they come out and follow the uh, pace car out of the um, uh, this apron, why, they will uh, get up in their regular positions, three abreast, during the first lap and come down by the uh, grandstands and everything in perfect formation for one lap. And uh, then on going around the second time, the pace car will pull aside and start the race. You're looking forward, of course, to your ride in that pace lap with Jack Reith in the Mercury Turnpike Convertible, aren't you, Tony? Yeah, I certainly am, and it's a beautiful automobile. And I'm um, looking for a fine, uh, perfect start. And about $100,000 to the winner, right? That's about right, Sid. Well, thank you very much, Tony Holman. And friends, this is Sid Collins reminding all you sports fans the place to be on May 30th is the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, where the 500-mile race will be run for the 41st time this year. And what Tony Holman was talking about there, they changed the, the procedure for the start of the race in 1957 and 1958, and it was actually an utter disaster both years. I mean, in 57, Eddie Russo and Elmer George got together before the start of the race in an accident. And then, of course, there was the uh, confused, messed up start in 1958 that uh, also then ended up in a tragic situation where we lost Pat O'Connor. Uh, so they ended up scrapping it after 1958 because both 1957 and 58 were such a, you know, confused and clumsy start both years. When we come back, if you've been to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, you have invariably seen the red hats, the white hats, the gold hats, all with the same patch on the front. Indianapolis 500 old timers. Mike, I believe you are a member of such organization, correct? I uh, no, I am not. I am stunned that you're not a member of the old timers club. I, I've actually a couple different people wanted to nominate me for that, and I I went through part of the process, but I've never actually gotten all the way through. Well, I could actually nominate you if you'd like to revisit it because I am a member. I would love to be in the group. Okay, well, we will get that done. As a matter of fact, when we come back, I'll explain a little more for folks what the old timers exactly are, and we'll take a look at one of the key central figures in racing around the 50-year mark of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway that helped that organization come to fruition. We'll explain when we return to Beyond the Bricks. Jake Query, Mike Thompson, Beyond the Bricks here, 93.5, 107.5, The Fan. Again, a reminder, memorabilia show, going to be 3 until 8 o'clock tomorrow. 
at the Embassy Suites Event Center in Plainfield. Tickets just $7. A bargain at twice the price. If you miss out on Friday, you can still make it over on Saturday from 9 until 4. Your chance to get autographs, meet drivers of yesteryear, some of them still pretty current faces around the Speedway, and your chance to also pick up the coveted memorabilia for which you might have been looking far and wide. Back in 1961, a group decided to get together to celebrate 50 years of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And the only requirement, really, for the initial barbecue was that you had to be in some way, shape, or form related to the Speedway for 20 years. That tradition, which became known as the Indianapolis 500 Old Timers Club, still exists today. After 20 years of being a credentialed media member, whether that be a photographer, or excuse me, a credentialed member, whether that be an official, a photographer, a media member, whatever capacity one would have, after 20 years of that affiliation with the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, you are eligible for the Indianapolis 500 Old Timers Club. You receive the hat, the first year of which is red. Then after, I believe it's 20 years of membership, that becomes gold. And then another 20, I believe it's 20 or 25, ultimately a white hat. But it's quite the badge of honor to be able to go to the barbecue or simply hang out in the old timers room near the Pagoda Plaza. Mike, this all was, amongst others, the vision of somebody who had been kind of a board track wizard, a race car driver and mechanic in his own right back in the 20s and then ultimately served as the chief steward of the Indianapolis 500 after the war. That's correct. One of the top board track guys, and at this point, I believe he's the referee. And I actually had to call Donald at one point a couple weeks ago, and I said, Donald, I keep hearing these guys referred to as the referee. What did the referee do? And he said, essentially, he was like the assistant to the chief steward. And also there was an honorary referee position at one point, and that's where they had, like, for example, Amelia Earhart was the honorary referee at one point. But uh, I believe in this clip, Harlan Fangler is still the referee before his ascendance to Chief Stewart. Harlan Fangler had been a riding mechanic for Harry Hart's. As a matter of fact, in the 1922 Indianapolis 500, he worked on cars in a number of different capacities. Then, as Mike mentioned, got into the scoring side of things. Also, he sat down with Tom Carnegie. Hi there, race fans. Right now, let's talk racing. Let's talk about the fabulous 500-mile race in Indianapolis, Indiana. This is Tom Carnegie at the scene of action in Indianapolis, where activity is really at fever pitch for the big race on Monday, May the 31st. I think it's very interesting to go behind the scenes here at the Speedway and talk to some of the officials in charge. We have just such a gentleman with us now, the referee of the 500-mile race, Harlan Fangler. And very often when you talk to these gentlemen, you find out that they've been associated with racing for a good many, many years. And Mr. Fangler, I think that's true in your case, right? Yes, it is, Tom. I wonder I... if you'd give us a little uh, background on yourself. Well, I came here first in 1922, and I was Harry Hart's riding mechanic in one of the big Duesenbergs. In those days of the old two-seated cars. That's right. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I was the only uh, person to ride with Hart's. Mm -hmm. And then how'd you finish that year? Do you remember? We well, finished second. Then uh, did you ever uh, move from mechanic to driver? Yes. I uh, came here in 1923 with one of the big Durants, cut down to 122 cubic inches. Mm -hmm. How'd you come out that year? Well, I didn't finish. I broke an oil tank. And I think that was the year that Tommy Milton scored his second 500 Yes, victory. he did. 
Now, I think you had some, uh, in years gone by, some great success on the board tracks, too. Yes, I seem to have good luck on the boards. Uh, for example? <laughs> well, uh, I won at Kansas City and set a new record. I won at Beverly Hills and set a new record. Mm -hmm. This was in 1923 and 1924. Have you ever, uh, then, after your uh, retirement from uh, driving, did you ever own a race car? No, uh, but I built the Kragar engines. Mm -hmm. uh, built those in Los Angeles, and uh, some of them are still running on the dirt. Mm -hmm. Now let's uh, talk about uh, this year's 500-mile race and the fellows who are in it and who hope to be in it on Monday, May the 31st, and compare them with, uh, say, the drivers of other years, fellows like Tommy Milton and Harry Hartz, whom we've already mentioned, and you yourself, Harlan. Uh, how would you uh, compare the drivers of today and yesterday, for example? Well, in my opinion, Tom... Uh, the drivers of today, uh, a greater percentage of them are good drivers, and uh, necessarily so. Uh, to get in this race, you just have to be good. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you were a car owner, you'd trust your equipment, uh, uh, no matter what it cost, with most any of these boys out here. I think so. Mm -hmm. uh, anyone capable of uh, uh, qualifying here, he'll take care of your car. I imagine that one of the biggest improvements you've noticed in competition here at the 500 has been in the matter of equipment, the cars that these fellows uh, put their life in. Well, uh, there have been wonderful changes in the automobiles. Uh, the springing, and the suspension, the tires, the fuels. Uh, there's no comparison to these cars and the cars that I came here with. Mm -hmm. Say, what does a referee of the 500-mile race do, Arlen? Well... Uh, as you know, Harry McQuinn is the chief steward. Uh, there's another steward uh, who this year will be Mr. Wilcox. Uh, the three of us uh, run the race under the rules of the American Automobile Association Contest Board. Mm -hmm. You run all of the qualification days and yes. also the big day on May the 31st. Well, a lot of good luck in your second straight year as the referee of the race, Mr. Harlan Fengler of Dayton, Ohio. Uh, we'll be seeing a lot of you around the track, and we're looking forward, like you are, to a great race in Indianapolis, the 500-mile race on Monday, May the 31st. You know, Mike, one of the things that stands out to me about listening to some of this old audio, I think it becomes illuminated that you didn't have the ubiquitous level of media that you have today. And oftentimes, the people who are being interviewed, quite frankly, don't have the the overall experience of being the interviewee like drivers or, and I realize tonight we're doing behind the scenes people, but even the drivers that were interviewed back then, it wasn't like today where every time you turn around, there's a microphone or a camera for drivers to talk to and become familiar with the the pacing that comes with an interview. You can tell with some of these, it happened like once in their career or not very often, and therefore they're just the pregnant pauses and kind of the awkward moments, if that makes sense. I, I agree. Um, I think there's probably a lot of truth in that. I can't imagine there'd be a lot of, you know, call for Harlan Fengler to be interviewed other times than, you know, leading up to the 500-mile race. Then again, the two of us have been around microphones a long time, and we're two of the most awkward people anybody could meet. Just kidding. But if you do want to meet Mike, again, a reminder, 4 to 8 tomorrow, 9 until 4 Saturday at the Embassy Suites Event Center in Plainfield for the memorabilia show. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond the Bricks. Enjoy Carb Day, everybody.